um, I want to invite Dr. Mancha, who's professor of philosophy at Ashland University, to the podium. All right. <laughs> Thank you for having me yet again. I do appreciate it. And I am sorry that I do not have a really cool handout for you this evening. Um, it's just one of those times where I just wasn't able to put everything together. So hopefully you can follow along with me uh, as we do this. Um, it's, we're going to tie in some of the other things that we did discuss last time. Um, but we'll see if we can, you know, lay it out a bit more cleanly. Uh, because what we're going to be talking about tonight, this issue of justice and mercy and then the atonement, right, the redemptive act. In one respect, Anselm's response to this is incredibly simple. It's a very easy thing to think about. And yet, as we lay out the simple, we recognize, well, there are some problems, right? There are some difficulties to be explained. And so we'll try to uh, fill in some of the blanks as we move along. So again, thank you for, for having me again this evening. And just as a, another uh, uh, preliminary, this is probably going to be the most speculative talk I've given up to this point. You know, there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle. Hopefully we can boil it all down to capture Anselm's basic analysis of this relationship between justice and mercy uh, and the role of Christ in the redemptive act. Okay? So if we go back just a little bit, remember um, two sessions ago we talked about truth. And truth was very important. Uh, Anselm explained that when we're talking about the divine nature, preliminarily speaking, we want to be able to say that God is truth. Right? And I suppose we should qualify that God is truth with a big capital T. Yes? Right. Thank you. And this observation that Anselm offers to us in that reading is um, important. Not only is God truth itself, but God is the cause and the source of all that is true. In particular, we understand God the Father as the cause of all that there is, of all that exhibits rectitude, if you remember that term, and right ordering. So in this, Anselm defined truth, this word truth, as the rectitude perceptible by the mind alone, this rightness, this right fittingness that we perceive as rational agents. Similarly, and we'll get to this a little bit later, this notion of justice, he says, is a subclass of truth. Justice, he tells us, is rectitude of the will for its own sake. And so we have this understanding of truth and God as the cause and source of rectitude. Rightness. Order. And this aspect of rectitude, again, as we mentioned last time, is most perfectly exemplified in the Trinity, specifically in the relationship between the Father and the Son, Anselm tries to tell us, insofar as the Son is considered to be the natural Word of God. The Word of God, recall, is this perfect image of the Father, as Anselm tries to explain it. So not only is the Son the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
He is the rectitude that is perceptible in the mind of God, according to Anselm. But the Son is that through which God utters and orders the world, bringing creation into existence. So we've got this issue of God, God being truth, and then this aspect of the Word. So we've got the Word. And it's curious how if he defines truth as the rectitude perceptible by the mind alone, the Word of God, as God utters himself, this rightness, this ordering that he recognizes in himself, according to Anselm, becomes its own personhood. It's a perfect image, right? And insofar as we get through the Word, we get creation. The things that we see in creation exemplify a certain order, a certain rectitude of their own, according to Anselm, particularly what he calls the truth of essences. Namely, what makes substances be what they are. So, in creation, through the Word, all things are made. And they exist, according to Anselm, at least in the beginning, they exist as they ought. That is, as God rightly intended them and ordered them to be. So this issue of rectitude is all the way down. And notice, since everything which exists accords with the plan of the divine mind, or the highest truth, then everything which exists as he tells us, truly is. It is what it should be, at least in the beginning. Nothing exists at all which is not in the highest truth or has not received what it is or what it has from the highest truth. So when Anselm speaks of the truth of essences, the truth of natures, he sometimes calls it, what he has in mind is the correspondence between objects in the world. So we have things things in the world, and then the archetypes or the ideas in the mind of God. And notice there's going to be a perfect correspondence between them. That correspondence is a kind of rectitude. It exemplifies truth, according to Anselm. Now at this point, things get sticky. <laughs> right? We just made something now. <laughs> oh, well... Aside from the natural things in the world, the things that seem to go on of their own accord by means of the laws of physics and such, God decides to bring into the world these other things. Right? So you've got, with the truth of essences, you've got um, natural things, what we call, and then you have rational things. Okay? Now, rational things are a kind of natural thing, but rational things have a particular power, a unique activity that distinguishes them from the other kinds of living and non-living things that exist in the universe. God creates creatures, creatures that have both reason and will. The existence of creatures with rational wills introduces the possibility for a very special kind of activity, namely the ability to will the ability to will rightly or the ability to will wrongly. 
Whether we're talking about angels, as we noted last time, you know, pure spiritual creatures, or the first humans, who are composites of spirit and matter, in their creation, God gave them, again in the beginning, all that they needed to live well. What did God give them? God gave them what he calls original justice. This feature, this property, this condition. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a disposition, right? That the will has, which allows it to seek rectitude for its own sake. So, the justice, the ordering in the world, can also then be exhibited by the things which God creates. And rational creatures have this role, this ability to be able to will in accordance with the order of the universe. They can say, thy will be done, or my will be done. So we've got this observation about this power, this feature, this condition that Anselm talks about. When he talks about justice, he thinks that it's a kind of thing, a property that you have, just like the redness in the seats or the woodenness of the pews. It's something that wills have. Okay? And again, this gift was a part of the original creation, according to Anselm. It's a part of God's justice, as a matter of fact. Right? His ordering of the world. Each thing that God creates receives precisely what it needs in order to be complete and to fulfill its nature. So when a creature wills in accordance with justice, it does what it ought. It does what it was designed for. It does what it was created to do. So it is the good, and it does the good. Okay? Well, in On the Fall of the Devil, we talked a little bit about this last time. Anselm explained that the existence of evil, particularly with regard to the fall of Satan, as we talked about, it came about precisely because of this curious ability that we see in rational creatures. So when we talk about rational creatures, you know, we can talk about the angels, and in particular Satan, right? And then humans. The will, according to Anselm, can remain in justice. It can keep this gift, as he describes, that God has given in order to will rightly. Or it can give it up. It can give it away. For what? Who knows? But for some other thing that the agent happens to believe is good. You see, again, just to remind us, the nature of the will for someone like Anselm is not something that we call completely capricious. We don't have this open-endedness with regard to our wills. Our wills are designed naturally to be drawn towards some sort of a good. Right? They have what's called this appetitive condition. They seek what it is that they desire. So they're not just sort of open-ended. And anything that draws the will, whether angelic or human, is going to be some sort of a good. And the question is, what kind of a good is it? In the beginning, according to Anselm, the angels, Satan in particular, had this opportunity to will the good, to stick with what it had, to keep this good thing, this fundamental choice that was given to them between justice or some other kind of advantage, whatever it was, that was available to the angels and ultimately becomes available to human beings as well. And whether we retain it or lose it, 
is really where things start to get sticky, as I mentioned. So what is evil? Or more perspicuously, evil doing, right? And for Anselm, the most important thing here is that it's not like evil is not a thing, yes? So evil is a, is a way of recognizing something that has gone wrong, namely something disordered, yes, in the act of creation. So what is it? A will, he says, is evil. It's evil if this rectitude, if this original justice is absent from it. Injustice, then, is the absence. The absence or privation of justice in the will. And an absence, notice, isn't anything at all. It's something missing. The absence itself has no positive being. So a bad will is a will. It doesn't cease to be a will. It's a power that you have for directing yourself towards certain ends. But it's lost a certain kind of perfection. It's lost some kind of alignment, some kind of rectitude. So it cannot function the way that it was intended to function. It's disordered. It seeks after goods, but it seeks after the wrong ones. <clears throat> so we have this basic observation that sort of through the act of creation, you've got ordering, you've got this correspondence in truth between how God visions the world and then how things come about. And things are as God wants them to be, and yet there's this curious little caveat, right? You, you bring into existence free creatures, Creatures that have the ability to make certain kinds of choices. And it opens the door, obviously. It's a great good, Anselm thinks it is, right? W without it, we cannot do rightly, right? Without it, we cannot love God, we cannot love neighbor. But of course, with it, we can also then turn. Right? So, evil's a curious thing, right? If evil's a privation, literally nothing, an absence, so to speak, consider, right? What are we really worried about then? What should, why should we let that disturb us? If we go back to on the fall of the devil, right, the student is having this discussion with Anselm about what the nature of evil is and why we should worry about it. And he says, if evil is really nothing, then he says on page 183 in chapter 10 of On the Fall of the Devil, he says, when we hear the name evil, there would be no reason for our hearts to fear what they understand to be signified by that name if it in fact signifies nothing. Right, so if that term, evil, picks out nothing, why should we be afraid of it? Do you understand? Oh, it's just an absence. So what? And there's a little bit of an argument in here that he offers to us, and it goes like this. Consider the word evil. Okay? We'll put it over here. Can't get it any further from God's creation, but there it is, right? Evil. <laughs> evil is a name. It's a term that presumably we understand, yeah? And if you remember this issue of language that we talked about in, uh, on truth, right, that first main lecture that we had, consider, suppose that evil, that term, is nothing. Okay, suppose it's nothing. Here's, here's the student's worry. If the term evil is a name, if it's a real name, it signifies. If a term signifies, it signifies something, yes? Therefore, the term evil seems to signify something. But, Anselm, you just said evil is nothing. Therefore, the word evil signifies nothing. Therefore, the term evil signifies something and nothing. For those of you who haven't recognized that yet, that's a contradiction. Yes, that's a problem. It can't be both. Yeah. And so, uh, therefore, either you're wrong, Anselm, or the word evil is completely devoid of meaning and we ought not worry about it. 
It's a silly little argument, right? But it's one that we ought to take seriously. And just to let you know, this is a very old problem, by the way. It goes all the way back to uh, Parmenides, okay? Because the question here is this. How can we talk meaningfully about nothing? I'm not quite sure how else to ask that question, right? I mean, suppose you have nothing. I mean, like, really, nothing. Nothing has no features whatsoever, yes? Right? There, there, it has no positive qualities. And if it has no positive qualities, then how is it possible for us to be able to even speak of it? Right? Because there's no it to speak of. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, that's good. Yeah. What's the difference between the label and what's in the jar? So what you put the label on it, and what are you trying to express with the label? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the worry, right? I'm not, you're, not, you're not saying anything, are you? But you are saying something, aren't you? Seems like you're saying something. But it's nothing. I mean, you really can't point at nothing. I mean, it's not a thing, yes? No, really, when someone tells you, look, there's nothing in the jar, you don't walk by and sort of kind of stay, keep your distance, right? Because the nothing's going to come out. You don't think that. You, 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 think something, you, think, you think it's the absence. But the absence of what? In one respect, yeah. I say in one respect if we can demonstrate somehow that something truly belongs in the jar and it's not being in the jar, right, reveals something negative. That's why it's not evil that you don't have wings, by the way. You know that that's a privation that you have, right? We, we don't have wings, but we don't want to say you're evil because you lack, right, wingedness, because it's not part of your nature to have it. On the other hand, if you read De Kazu, he says something about the nature of beards, right? And the, you know, the masculine condition. <laughs> we'll read that quote later. <laughs> yeah. So we do have to give that, that added condition, right? It would be evil if something, we could demonstrate something belonged to that jar and it's absent from it and it somehow reveals an imperfection or a lack of excellence because of that absence. Does that make more sense? That's why when you don't have justice, what does it reveal? an incompleteness in you, yeah? A defect, an inability for you to will rightly in accordance with truth. But we can talk about it. We can talk about nothing. Because it's something. And nothing. Anselm's answer to this question, which we aren't going to talk too deeply about, is that, oh, that sounds like a contradiction? Nah, you can have both. It's both something and nothing but in two different respects. So let me see if this helps a little bit. So Again, let me just read you his response, first of all. If you have our text, it's um, page 185 of the text. If you have the... Um, uh, and if not, it's in chapter 11 on, on the fall of the devil. Okay, so it's midway through chapter 11. So he says this. He says, perhaps signifying nothing is not inconsistent with signifying something. And the student says, well, suppose they're not inconsistent. Then either this word nothing signifies nothing when taken in one way and something when taken in another way, or else we'll have to find a thing that's both something and nothing. 
And Anselm says, well, what if both turn out to be true? What is if we can find two ways of understanding this name and also find one and the same thing to be both something and nothing? And the student's like, I'd like to see that. <laughs> I'd like to know that one. So what Anselm wants to be able to say, I mean, here's the punchline, right? Evil, of course, is nothing. Right? That is, it's not a positive thing at all, but it is a quasi-something that requires us to be able to understand that concept by way of negation of a concept that we do understand. So, let me just talk a little bit about the issue of something. Right, so, I had asked everyone last time, if you were able to, if you didn't, that's okay, to take a look at the Lambeth fragments. So, there's some curious stuff going on in there, Lambeth fragment number 10. And in number 10, he talks about four ways in which we talk about the word something and what we could mean. And when we talk about something, the word something, there really is, there are two, there are two basic ways that we, when we say there's something and use that in an expression, we could be meaning. We could be talking about it in a per se sense or what's called an oblique sense. So let me give you an example, right? So let's not get confused by the terms, but let's talk about what he's saying here. So this issue of talking about something per se, remember this issue of signification, proper signification, the term picks something out in the world. When we use the word something in its proper sense, we're using it referentially. We're using it as a name that actually picks a thing out that exists in the world. So for example, when I say that this morning I tore my finger on something while I took out the trash, I mean that there was a thing, a metal can lid, as a matter of fact, that I tore my finger on. This is called per se signification. So per se signification, when it actually sort of signifies a thing, something that has positive features that we can identify. We use the word something as a replacement for it, yes? Now, he talks about three different ways that we can use what's called oblique signification, but I'll just give you the most important one that he's discussing. The most important one that he's discussing concerns the issue of talking about just a name. Just a word. Right? And that word refers to a negative concept. This, of course, has certain grammatical functions, like the label on our jar, okay? Where the name has no what we'll call corresponding affirmative mental concept or set of positive defining characteristics. Anselm's one example is of injustice, okay? He says when we say that, for example, Jones was punished on account of something. Consider someone saying like that, right? Jones was punished on account of something. You can say, well, what was he punished for? Well, for an, an injustice that he did. <laughs> Notice when, he, when I replace that word, right, something with injustice, I'm not really adding anything, do you understand, to that reference. But what am I picking out? I'm picking out a particular kind of negative concept, namely one that makes reference to a positive condition, call it justice, and then I'm negating it. 
We do this all the time, by the way, in many of the other concepts that we think about in our daily lives. So consider the concept of rest in physics, right? Like no movement. Notice in order to be able to understand that concept, rest, we have to be able to understand rest with respect to what? Yes, rest with respect to kinetic energy, with respect to movement. Right? Lack of movement, in other words. That concept has meaning. It's, it's, by the way, zero miles an hour is not a speed. Right? You guys know this, yes? It's not a speed. It, it's not on the scale, right? the corresponding scale of a speed that you can go. So when you're at rest, the only way to understand that concept is to understand it with respect to motion. Yeah? So rest is a negative concept, and you can only understand it in relation to something positive that we can describe, and then we negate it. Darkness is like this. Right? Darkness is utterly meaningless unless we recognize that it's in reference to something that is, namely light. And so we have many concepts that are like this. And for Anselm, justice and injustice are like this, and good and evil are like this. So, only in that per se sense of something, when you're actually referring to a thing, okay, are you properly what we're called, you know, signifying. The, the other senses, particularly this one I'm talking to you about, this understanding of what we call oblique signification, doesn't refer specifically to a thing, right? It only signifies a quasi-something, a thing of grammar as opposed to ontology, and so why is this important, right? So I just sort of dragged you down this trail. Uh, one, because you should really understand how you use words sometimes and what different kinds of concepts we have. We have all sorts of very complex type of concepts. But in another, when we get to Anselm's response concerning evil, the signification of evil and what we should be worried about, right? He has this distinction in mind. So for him, the word nothing doesn't differ in meaning from the expression, obviously, not something, where you can identify something with particular characteristics and say those characteristics are absent. Right, the negation of a thing includes the meaning of the thing, negated. So it refers to both the thing and its absence, both to something real and something that doesn't exist. So it's reality denied. The same thing then with the word evil, he tells you. The word evil signifies something, but obliquely. Evil signifies the absence of good. Where the good ought to be found, by the way, again, that condition, where the good ought to be found. It's an absence of reality. Therefore, he says, it's coherent to claim that evil and nothing are not real, even though we speak of them as real. Any questions before we move on with that one? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens? Exactly. That's right. 
Right, just like if you were blind. Blindness, you know blindness, so, so consider someone who's blind. Notice, blindness isn't a thing that someone has, right? Blindness is an absence of sight. It's not as if you have sight and you have another thing. Call it the blindness, and the blindness fights against the sight, right, and wins. That's not how it works. It's just simply the absence of this ability to see. And you might say, well, you know, well, it's nothing, so what is there to worry about? Well, if you can't see, we ought not put you behind the wheel of a car, yes? Why not? Right? We won't be able to direct the car, right? If you have no sight, you're not able to watch the movie. Not really. You can listen. Yeah. If you can't see, well, you might fall into a a well. They like falling into wells, these philosophers. So it can cause, do you understand, the absence of it. If, it can't, if you don't have the positive condition with which you can guide yourself, right? This is the metaphor, right? Sight allows us to guide ourselves. So without that, do you understand, we're walking blind. Similarly, without justice with the will, how are we willing? Not in accordance with the good. Not being able to direct ourselves towards, you know, the order of the universe. Notice we fight against it, ultimately. We don't work with it. It's, do you understand? We're part of this, right? That's the whole, that's one of the, well, not the whole, but one of the main issues of Genesis, right? We're a part of this order. We're a part of this. And the lack of justice causes us to fight against the very thing of which we are a part because we cannot stay aligned with it. Even when we want to, St. Paul tells us. So in chapters 15 to 19 of On the Fall of the Devil of Dekazu, Anselm returns to the discussion of justice and injustice again. So we're coming right back here. Right? Injustice, he tells us, is a kind of evil. It's the evil that makes wills bad. Justice is the good that makes wills good. A will is just if it has the property of uprightness which belongs properly to the nature of a will. A will is evil if this uprightness is missing. So justice for Anselm is something, okay? Something that he says, when added to the will, quote, governs the will, so that it does not will more than what is fitting and expedient for it to will. I don't know if this is the best example to give, but think of it akin to, like, the regulator on most automobiles. Again, it's just an analogy, but it's a way to think about it, right? Just as the regulator doesn't allow the vehicle to accelerate beyond a certain point, beyond a certain speed. So too, justice doesn't allow the will to extend itself beyond what is expedient, what is fitting, or what is properly ordered. Right. And for those of you who study the rest of the history of philosophy, this is what the natural law, right, requires. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and you might get that impression, of course, when you think about right uh, the tree. Yes, right. It's knowledge of good and evil, uh, but it's knowledge. It's not knowledge of right. It's it's. I mean, it, it's knowledge of, not uh, the ability to, to to decide what's good and evil. Right. So there's a difference. Um, strictly speaking, no. Okay, according to Anselm. Strictly speaking, what we do have the power to do is participate in that act of creation, right? So human beings, as we mentioned last time, have this very uncanny ability that the angels don't have, right? We can procreate, right? We can participate in that act of creation, and when we do that, we do it rightly, what happens? You bring into existence something with the essence that it's supposed to have, right? Again, all things being equal, right? Pre-fall, before disorder in nature and everything else. So we have that ability. And the naming, the naming of animals is really interesting. Okay, and there are a lot of things that have been said about that particular observation. And notice the idea is not so much for Adam to decide what they are, yes, on his own. Adam is actually given a challenge, right? And it has two conditions, it seems. Right? God tells him, go, 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 go name the animals. Why? Because one, he wants Adam to use his reason to recognize that there are differences in nature. There are things that he can discern using his own natural powers to know what their natures are and how they're distinguished from one another. So to name them here is not just to give them a linguistic term. It's to try to understand what he talked about last time, the natural word, the one which we all understand. We all look at an elephant and we see something. And what do we see? We see this, this um, creature that has certain kinds of you know, in science, phenotypical features, but it also exhibits a certain behavior that's quite regular, that's, that's quite discernible. And when you watch how elephants behave, they behave very differently than fish do, yes? They behave very differently, you know, than parakeets do. And, and in, in that, that recognition of behaviors tells us there's something deep within what it is, its essence, that defines its truth, you know? So that's the first charge. And what's the second charge, then, that, that, that Adam is supposed to find out here? What's the rest of the story? Well, yes, we're supposed to take care of them, right? But, but because cause they've been put under his charge. Yes, but what's the second thing? He needs a helpmate. These things are interesting, but they're not like me. They're not like me. None of them is a suitable helpmate for me. So he recognizes not only that he's able to apply this power that he has, but in applying this power, he recognizes that he has one that's distinct from the other powers that the creatures have been given. Right? So then he recognizes, oh yeah, I'm alone now. Right? I've got all these other things, but there's nothing there right, to complete me. Because even in the act of creation, God creates all things, again, ordered a certain way, but built within that act of ordering, built within this idea of having been created in the image and likeness of God? Well, if God's triune, that is, if God is community, then you and I, what do we have to reflect in order to be complete? Some act of the other, yes? Some act of community. We were created for community. We were created for love. We cannot do this alone, right? We cannot do this on our own. So that's the second thing, right? So it has, that has other kinds of implications, yes? Um, and that's why it's not good for the man to be alone. Right? In, you know, your literal and your figurative sense. So, um, 
Yeah, so we can participate in that, yes? We can discover those essences. We can discover those features or conditions. And again, Anselm has read uh, Aristotle, and particularly the categories, and in the categories, right, Aristotle is very good at trying to lay out how we, we go out and the, we carve it up. We recognize that there are different kinds of being in the world, and those different kinds of beings come in different degrees and how we come to understand them. Right? And then we can make utterances, we can make claims or affirmations that either get it right or get it wrong, given how we've described the world. Yeah. That's a good question, though. So we've got injustice, <coughs> excuse me, inordinate desire, as it was described by St. Augustine, as a matter of fact. The state of a will that's not ordered properly. And again, remember this issue, and here's what's really important. The will without justice extends itself beyond the boundaries of order. Okay? And so he says, by inordinately willing something in addition to what he had received, he's talking about Satan, he stretched out his will beyond the bounds of justice. Later on in the history of philosophy, René Descartes will pick this right up. And he'll say, you know, what, where does error arise in the human person? Error does not arise in the intellect, right? The intellect just knows what it knows. It experiences what it experiences. The error arises, at least as Descartes understands it, coming from this Platonic tradition, the, when you will beyond your understanding. When you make judgments about things that you don't have any knowledge about. That's when you open yourself up to error. Same thing with sin. And he says, like, this is the root of sin, by the way. When we will beyond, he says what justice demands. And again, what's wrong with this? Well, hopefully we see what's wrong with this, right? The dignity and praiseworthiness of the angels themselves, and by implication, of course, humans, comes in no small part from their being obligated to have justice. It's part of their natural design. It's part of what they need in order to exemplify the fullness of their nature, whatever it is, right? Whether as angel or as human. They were all created with it, Anselm thinks. But something happened on the way to the feast. So we're in chapter 14 on De of Dekazu, and we're on page 195. And he says, Therefore, right, the student is recognizing this, since you cannot be called just or unjust for willing only happiness, or for willing only what's fitting when he wills in that way out of necessity, and since he neither can nor ought to be happy unless he wills to be happy and wills it justly, God must create both wills in him in such a way that he both wills to be happy and wills it justly. This added justice governs his will for happiness so as to curtail its excess without eliminating its power to exceed. Thus, since he does will to be happy, he can exceed the limits of justice, but since he wills it justly, he does not will to exceed them. And thus, having a just will for happiness, he both can and ought to be happy. By refraining from willing what he ought not to will, even though he could will it, he deserves to be unable ever to will what he ought not. By always retaining justice through a discipline, will, he deserves not to lack happiness in any way. On the other hand, if he abandons justice through an undisciplined will, he deserves to be deprived of happiness altogether. So for some reason, the bad angels spontaneously willed their happiness 
some advantage over and above justice beyond the bounds of rectitude and order. And in doing so, they had to give it up and they dishonored themselves. They had a choice. They couldn't remain in original justice and will outside of it, yes? You had a choice. And if you want something outside of original justice, you're going to have to give it up. Again, I think I gave a terrible example last time about this. Sort of like, so, so think like just in terms of goods, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. Yeah? So wanting love, wanting to be able to be with another person and share experiences in your life with them, that's a good thing, yes? In principle, that's a good thing. Except if you're promised to someone else. If you're promised to someone else and you decide to will that thing, what have you done? Right? You have to throw that away, do you understand? Those promises mean nothing. You have to break them. And so the issue here is you can't have both. It's a forced option, unfortunately. And it's a momentous one because it has long-range effects. And we're still feeling them today. So as I mentioned, uh, I like Anselm's analogy of the beard in chapter 16, page 198 again of our reader. He says this, The absence of justice is dishonorable only where there ought to be justice. For example, not having a beard is not dishonorable for a man who is not yet supposed to have a beard. But once he ought to have it, it is unbecoming for him not to have one. In the same way, not having justice is not a defect in a nature that's not obligated to have justice, but it is disgraceful for a nature that ought to have it. And to whatever degree his being supposed to have a beard shows his manly nature, to that degree his not having it disfigures his manly appearance. <laughs> you, f you find the great saints fighting about all sorts of things. And believe it or not, they fight a lot about facial hair. They come down, like they all come down aside somewhere. It's hilarious. Fair enough, right? But see, my, see, but here's the thing. My, my natural inclination, right, all things being equal, <laughs> is for this to happen. <laughs> That's just what happens. Yeah, now, now it comes out more white than anything else, right? So here's where, again, things get worrisome. Okay, so we know what happened. We understand what, what took place minimally. Again, we, we don't know what it is that Satan wanted, right? What caused him to give up justice? What could have been so amazing that he had to go after it and in doing so, right, step outside the bounds of justice? Who knows? Again, might it be something that he could have gotten later had he just been patient? Who knows? Yeah? So the question here is, well, why can't the angels get back their original justice once they abandoned it? Since they didn't give it them to themselves in the first place, right? They can't, by their own power, get it back, right? It's not a power that they can get back to themselves, right? You can't just go to Walmart and buy justice, okay? But in virtue of the fact that they were created with it as part of their nature, they had the ability and the wherewithal to, quote-unquote, give it to themselves, that is, to keep it. Some chose to, some chose to abandon it. And again, that should tell you about the power of the will according to the traditional theistic picture. 
And it's a terrifying power that we have, as a matter of fact. It's a terrifying power. But it also abrogates God from responsibility here, according to Anselm. Anselm summarizes his view at the end of chapter 18, then. He says, uh, For until someone has received justice, he's neither just nor unjust. And once someone has received justice, he does not become unjust unless he spontaneously abandons it or gives it up. Therefore, just as a good angel made himself just by not taking justice away from himself, even though he could, by not giving it away, so also God makes an evil angel unjust by not giving back justice, even though he could. So notice what are we doing when we use the term evil now? What are we getting a grip on? Either an evil will, according to Anselm, or whatever we call evil on account of an evil will. Human or actions right, or effects. So he says, evil, quote, on 201, is nothing other than the absence of justice that has been forsaken, either in a will or in some other thing on account of an evil will. So what do we fear when we feel e fear evil? Whether it be acts or individuals? Well, we don't fear it per se, right? We don't fear a thing, right? We fear the absence of something. We fear the evil which follows from the absence of good. So on page 210, in chapter 26, he says, Now when we say that injustice causes robbery, or that blindness causes someone to fall into a ditch. We must in no way understand this to mean that injustice or blindness causes something. Rather, it means that if there had been justice in the will, or if there had been sight in the eyes, neither the robbery nor the fall into the ditch would have happened. It's like when we say that the absence of the rudder drives the ship into the rocks, or that the absence of the reins causes the horse to run wild. That simply means that if there had been a rudder on the ship or reins for the horse, the winds would not have driven the ship and the horse would not have run wild. For in the same way that a ship is controlled by the rudder and a horse by the reins, the human will is governed by justice and the feet by vision. So again, he's trying to give us as many examples as he can to let us understand how this absence can have Significant effects, right? Small and large, depending. And so finally, how are we to go about answering the original question of the student? You know, why would the angel have done this? Why would the angel have willed this? What is the source of the evil doing that Satan wills? And at the end of the dialogue here, it's just terrifying it's terrifying because the answer is, he just did. He just does. And it's incredibly unsatisfying. But the opposite answer is much worse. Because if you can find anything, anything that caused Satan other than his own will, do you understand? Anything that caused him to give up original justice, any disposition that God gave him that pushed him away, anything that God didn't give him which prevented him from making the right decision, anything at all other than his own will itself, then he's off the hook. Yes? 
we, we can't blame him for having made that decision because it's either God's fault, yes, or something else. And so the, the student is frustrated at this point. He's like, why? He keeps saying this. Why? Why did he will what he ought not to do? He says, no cause preceded this will except that he was able to will it. Well, did he will it because he was able to? No. Not just because he was able to. The good angel was likewise able to will it, but he didn't. No one wills what he can simply because he can, with no other cause, although no one ever wills anything unless he can. Well, then why did he will it? He keeps asking this. He says, just simply because he did. There was no other cause by which his will was in any way incited or attracted. Instead, his will was his own efficient cause. Period. And so, that's Satan. And now we have to worry about these things. The last little bit. So they made their choice. And again, what else could we give to them, do you understand, that would make them change their mind? That's really the open question. What other knowledge can you offer to them? What other position can you put them in such that they themselves, in the state that they're in, in the presence of God, would have made a different choice? The answer is nothing. Nothing, nothing more can be offered to them to cause them to will something differently other than the fact that they wanted that. Not quite the same with humans. We're stupid. Okay? Right? We, we do not have that sort of access with regard to the way in which we were designed. Now, while many theories have been offered throughout the centuries to try to explain what's going on here with human beings, and in particular how we account for the atonement, Anselm's position has been quite influential, right? And it's key to making sense of the scriptural emphasis that however you want to describe this, whatever story you want to tell about the redemptive act, Christ's role is indispensable. That, that's the key thing here, right? So, so Christian history reveals to us that, that Christ makes himself known to us, yes? The word becomes flesh. Whatever story you tell, you've got to include him in it. Right? So you can't just sort of say, God could have just snapped his fingers. That's not part of the story. Yes? That's not what we're here for. We're here to explain something else, Anselm thinks. So you had your hand up again, I'm sorry. Um, no, sir. Um, okay, I'm still trying to think about what you're, what you're asking me, what your question is, and it's just me, so it's just a bit of autobiography. So, um, um, like, other than sort of the, 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 sort of the divine order that's in creation, you mean? Well, yes, yes, absolutely. 
Oh, yeah, it's because here's the thing. What does it mean to be a human? So, so consider justice from another vantage point. Again, this issue of right ordering, right, rectitude that he talks about. It's justice, right, that God created humans as humans with the features and powers that they have, and he decided to create penguins without some of those features. That's perfectly just, right? He gave penguins all they need in order to be the things that they are, and he gave human beings all they need in order to be the things that they are. And so some people might say, well, why am I not a duck? Yes? Right? Like, why am I not an angel? Like, why? Because you're not one. Right? You're, God made you something else. Right? And just, just to point out to you, right, like this, this is why I think Anselm, in some respect, really sort of is endeared to St. Augustine. Because St. Augustine, he'd hear a question like that, and he'd say, quit your whining. He'd say something else. Right? Quit your whining. God could have made you a pickle, but he didn't. Right? Right? You're a human being. Praise Jesus. Yeah? Like, why are you whining about what you are? Right? Like, I wish I had more. Right? You know, why couldn't God have created... He did. He created other angels. You're just not one of them. Right? And, and the ducks aren't complaining that they're ducks. You know? And the fish aren't complaining that they're fish. Like, what are, what are you complaining about? But do you understand also how dangerous it is then when you start thinking about not wanting to be what you were created to be? This can go in many directions, yes? When you start thinking about not wanting to be what you were created to be, there is only one end result, and that's pain and suffering. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see it again. It, it, we, can't, we can't even hide it, do you understand? We can't hide the pain and suffering that people are going through when they try to reject their own place in the divine order. That's the natural law, folks, right? This is what emerges later on, right, in the, in the medieval period. Right? It, it's built into nature, right? It, fish don't wake up in the morning and say, I choose to be a fish, and they just they do their thing, right? They, 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 they just are what they are. And, and it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a joke, for example, for us to recognize there's one way to take care of an animal. Yes, got, we all have pets of different kinds. Right? You want to take care of a dog, right? If you have a dog that's a pet, there's a right way to take care of it, and there's a wrong way to take care of it. And you take care of a dog in a very different way than you take care of a pet goldfish. And you take care of a pet goldfish in a very different way than you take care of a pet parakeet. Right? And if you, if you confuse that, there's going to be pain. Right? There's going to be death. There's going to be suffering. So, yeah, like, kind of steer me in a different direction if I'm not quite getting at your question, I'm sorry. Sometimes I spin off, I know that, but, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, that's, it's, this, this is what Anselm has in the back of his mind. This ordering, I mean, I, we don't, there, there's a lane, right? There's a lane that we need to stay in, according to Anselm. And once you jump outside that lane... All bets are off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's purely moral. And we also think of evil, right, as 
purely a moral category when we also should see it as sort of uh, the defects in nature that occur, right? right? Absences of things that should be there. So if I had brought a handout, for example, but I, but I cut it, right, a corner of it off so that you couldn't read part of it, that would be me doing you an injustice. That would be an evil in one respect, right? Me preventing you from getting the whole good of whatever that handout would deliver. Probably not much, yes, but... I mean, that, that's what it would, it would be a defect, yes? And you would not be able to then to fully appreciate the good in that thing, okay? And we don't think like that because we don't, I mean, here's the thing. We don't think of good and evil in metaphysical terms. We don't think about them as conditions of reality themselves. We think about them as judgments we make, right? Subjective judgments we make about how we feel about things. And make no mistake, whatever Anselm thinks good and evil and justice and injustice are, it ain't that. He thinks they are real ways things are in the world. Again, just as real as the pew you're sitting on. Just as real as the clothes that you're wearing. Just as real as the food that you eat. Right? It's a thing that we can discuss and describe. And you either have it or you don't. So, in order to give Anselm's arguments their due, and again, I just want to simplify this one, uh, not just for time's sake, but also because there's a lot going on here in uh, Credeus Homo, right? Uh, we want to presume a few theological items of what we'll call Orthodox Trinitarianism, right, in the Incarnation. We just kind of just make sure we understand that Anselm, right, he's pretty Orthodox about this. God is one, right? God is triune. And it's important that we recognize theologically it puts us in a particular situation here, again, not only with having been created in the image and likeness of God and how we reflect the Trinity in our lives, but also sort of uh, the relations of God and who the Son is. Right? So we mean theologically that God is three persons but only one substance, right? Consubstantial. The persons of God are said to be non-identical, Hence, the relations that hold among the persons of the Trinity are asymmetric at best. As Athanasius has affirmed, we say the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet the Father is not the Son, right? The Son is not the Holy Spirit, etc. Thirdly, given the asymmetry of the relations in the Godhead, we believe that in the Incarnation, God assumes humanity into a unity of person, not nature. Okay? So in Christ, there's one person, and two natures. There's a divine nature and a human nature, but one person. So Christ shares the same humanity uh, with us. Shares the same nature with the Father, but not the same personhood. So in the incarnation, humanity is not assumed into the substance of God. The relations are established in the divine persons in a real way, okay? but they don't fragment the divine substance. Again, we're just kind of speaking figuratively here now right? because talking about the Trinity is very difficult, right, to be precise about this, and we know that the analogies eventually fail us. Okay, so that's about as detailed as I want to get about that one. So let's get at the simple answer here, and I say the simple answer concerning the issue of the Incarnation. In anticipation of a philosophical explanation for the Incarnation, St. Anselm put forth this argument, right, that he provides for us uh, in the Concordia, right, the intent of which is to demonstrate the relationship between grace and freedom. 
In the beginning, human beings were created in the state of original justice, just like angels were. They willed freely in accordance with God's intention and God's design. They originally chose what God desired for them. Again, Anselm understands this justice of the will is a property or feature that the will has, which is designated to help guide the agent towards their natural and proper end. This property, this feature, however, as we've seen even with the angels, it is not an inalienable property. It's not indefeasible. It's a gift. And like any gift, it can be given away. Now, for whatever reason, by their own free will, humans gave it away and thus lost this original justice or rectitude of the will. Right? Again, a lot of analysis has been done and speculation about the reasoning behind Adam and Eve's actions, whatever it was, right? In principle, they exchanged their original justice for the knowledge of good and evil. The ability to decide for themselves, right, and make the judgment. I want to seek what I think is good, independently of God's will. So they will that their will be done as beholden to no one, in the same way that Satan willed this. And this is clearly incompatible with, right, the divine understanding of rectitude, right? They will outside original justice. Such a willing is not only incompatible with the divine will, but is actually a direct affront to it, you know? So they've lost original rectitude. Literally, they exchanged it for something else. And so human beings became incapable of personally restoring favor with God, even by a well-intentioned free act of the will, it's a curious question that we might be able to ask ourselves, right? Instead of when God confronts them, yes? Instead of them doing the, the blame game. You guys know the blame game, right, that happens there? You know, it's like, Adam, why did you do this? And Adam, man, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? Huh? It, it's not just her fault. Yes, it's her fault. It's like, but he says, that woman which you gave to me. She made me eat. He's like, he blames her and he blames God. He's like, you're done now. <laughs> we're, like, we're, we're done. Yeah. Right, so he just, he just comes right out. And then, of course, she said, you know, I was tricked. Right? The snake tricked me. What if Adam and Eve had, had looked God in the eye and said, that, that was dumb. We really shouldn't have done that. We are sorry, Lord. short. <laughs> it's a really short book. I don't know. It's an interesting question to think about, yeah? Really, what if they had done this? How would this have gone? Huh? Yes, there's still a problem with that according to Anselm. <laughs> yeah, right, you can't unring the bell, you understand? <laughs> you know, you, you can't. Because they gave something away, right? They threw something away that they can't go and find again. Even if they desired to have original justice returned to them, they couldn't will to get it back on their own. Nor could they demand it back, right? They can't demand it of God. God owes them nothing. Hence, only the grace or gifting back of God can save humans, return them to a state of justice, return them to a state of the rectitude of the will. And from this basic picture of the fall, right, is that through grace, you know, salvation 
comes about. But, though grace is indeed necessary for human salvation, it's not sufficient in the case of rational creatures. At least as Anselm understands it. Adam and Eve could have kept their original justice. It was in their power to do so, notice. It was not something that was magical, right? That, you know, they could have kept it. Yet they also, as we have seen, had the power to freely abandon it. In cases where creatures have use of both reason and will, Anselm tells us, God's grace always assists in the natural free choice without which grace is powerless to attain salvation by giving their wills the rectitude that they preserve through free choice. Through free choice. So freedom of the will is also necessary, according to Anselm. Freedom of the will and, and God's grace. They're compatible and they're jointly necessary for the salvation of humans. So in Curdeus Homo, Anselm asks a straightforward question here. Keep knocking things down. By what reason or necessity did God become a human being? Okay. Again, though the entirety of the work is dedicated to resolving this question, again, we just want to focus in on these important elements here. Given our earlier analysis of the fall, we can understand why Anselm emphasizes that the salvation of human beings, the reconciliation with God, right, the, the at-one-ment, yes, the atonement, to become one again with God, right? That's not possible without reparation from the effects of sin. So, on the one hand, we have divine justice. And reparation needs to be met, according to Anselm. Again, one of these immediate effects is the loss of original justice or rectitude of the will. Divine justice, moreover, mandates that such effects cannot be eliminated by a pure act of forgiveness or mercy alone. Anselm warns us, he says, we should not confuse the mercy of God as seen in the incarnation and in the redemptive act Right? with some pure act of mercy in abstracta, absent of any kind of relation that it must have to things. Okay? So we have this issue of justice, and we have this issue of mercy. And these are often seen as, sometimes by individuals, incompatible. Yes, you know, how can you have justice and mercy at the same time? But again, here's what I want you to think about that Anselm offers to us here, as how he explains these things. Right? Justice. There it is. <laughs> Divine justice. Remember what justice does. Justice is right ordering, yes? The right ordering of something, giving a thing or a nature, whatever it needs in order to be able to flourish, in order to be able to succeed as the kind of thing that it is. Yes? So divine justice mandates that whatever is created, at least initially, has what it needs in order to flourish. So what does mercy do? Mercy doesn't conflict with that. Mercy is a reordering. Divine mercy is a desire to repair, to fix, to reorder what has been misaligned, what has been broken. In one respect, we see justice and mercy as being co-principles in nature. Right? Mercy doesn't act in conflict with justice. It restores it, according to Anselm. 
But the question is, how does this come about? So though divine mercy is something, again, over and above justice, it doesn't contradict it. Since sin in human beings originated through both an incompatibility with and affront to the divine will, the blatant injustice committed against God in original sin requires compensation. It requires rep- recompense, either by punishment or reparation, according to Anselm. God in his goodness, however, wills that all humans be- human beings be saved and desires to complete what he began in human nature, to fix it, to realign it. But humans have nothing to offer. We've got nothing to offer to God. Any injustice to God is infinite. So the price is beyond our ken. If compensation were to take place, it would have to be done by a human on behalf of humans, according to Anselm. A substance with a human nature. Yet who was in some way naturally or supernaturally able to pay such a price. This human would not only have to possess itself original justice, true and unwavering obedience to God, yet it would also have to exemplify a free and loving willingness to do whatever it took to restore this particular loss, to restore the fact that the claim, thy will be done, should be preserved in order to restore it was damaged through original sin. And this can only be done by the God-man, the Word made flesh. The incarnation is the merging together of the divine justice and the divine mercy, right? Of God and man to make recompense for that particular error of humans. So it must be done, Anselm says, on the same level, right, as the transgression was made. A curious observation, yes? Really interesting. And notice, in the Old, just like just for fun, right? In the Old Testament, what's the God that we see? What's the God that people complain about all the time, right? In the Old Testament, right? Oh, they, they claim that the, the, the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the New Testament. Yeah, it's so different. So, so like, oh, he's a God of, you know, anger, and he's a God of justice, right? He's a God of fury. And it's like, oh, but when Jesus comes, oh, God's much nicer, Yes? He's a God of love. Yeah, he's, good. he's the same God. He's the same being. Right? But he comes to, like, it, it, maybe just a common sense way of putting it is, like, at this point, Jesus is like, look, you just haven't gotten it yet. Right? You, know, you haven't gotten it. Right? You haven't been pursuing me. Right? I've been pursuing you all this time. I'm the one that wanted to fix this, right? You screwed it up, but it doesn't matter. I'm the one that had been, one, that had been trying to fix this for all these, and you just don't get it. So look what i got to do, right? To get it through your thick skulls that I love you, that I want you to be mine, and I want to be yours. And of course he's God, yes? He's God. Right? But Jesus comes and he says something else, doesn't he? Right? He says, I call you friend. 
brother. We call him not just God, yeah? Abba, Father. So we see it, and we've lost it all along because right in the beginning, of course, we, we misaligned it, yes? From the very beginning, how we see God has been altered, according to Anselm, because we have put, we have put ourselves away from God. And we ha- in order to be realigned with God, we have to be re-sort of integrated back into creation again and remember what our place is in nature and where we truly belong. And so, yeah, the fine is paid, by the way, but it's okay, even if, you know, the money comes from a benefactor, you still pay the debt. So what's key to preserve for Anselm here is the connection between the incarnation and the necessity. Again, this is what he contributes to the history of theology. And again, we fight about this, right, in various circles. You go to seminary and you talk about the redemptive act, you talk about the atonement, and there are various other theories that are put forth. But the key one that Anselm wants to offer to us here is the necessity of compensation that must take place. And if he's correct, then it was necessary for God to become incarnate. If God were to decide to redeem us. He says, he says that was a free choice. God did not have to do that, right? God owes us nothing. But because God loves us, if God were to decide to redeem us, he has to do it this way. That's the curious thing. He can't just snap his fingers, right, and make it all go away. He has to do it through this act. And so philosophers call this, what's, uh, it's called a hypothetical necessity. If this were to take place, right, this must be the way that it's done. That's how Anselm analyzes it, knowing full well that under no circumstances whatsoever does God have to do anything for us. Only divine mercy initiated that event. So mercy is this desire to repair what's broken, to repair what's disordered, to fix the injustice. Again, it's necessary for the restitution of justice. So here's where I want to stop. Right? Things get really complicated and curious, and he has some funky arguments in there, right, if you read the rest of Curdeus Homo, because according to Anselm, not only is it the case that it must happen this way, but it, his point is it has to be the Son, first of all. Like the Father couldn't have become incarnate, nor could the Holy Spirit have become incarnate, right? Nor both of them, right? It had to be the Son. And it, what for him, it, it reveals the kind of relationship right, between God and the Trinity, you know, in terms of those relations. So he thinks, like, when we call God Father and we call the Son the Son, we're getting at something that's very important, right? It's not just some sort of misogynist treatment, right, in how we understand God. He thinks we're getting at the nature of something. By the way, of course, he thinks that Jesus becoming a man, like a male, actually has significant metaphysical implications, too. Not that women aren't important, okay? They have a role, a very important role, as a matter of fact, to play, right? You know, the Blessed Mother mother played an incredibly important role in history, right? No guy could have done that. No guy could have done that. Yeah. 
Yes. Um, Yeah, um, so, so I'm going to say this and kind of back off, right? Because oh, this, this, this is completely outside of my wheelhouse, right? This, this understanding of these particular significances, but they're there, you know. And for those of you who have seen, um, have, any of them, have any of you seen The Chosen? They do a really good job in that series to try to draw out some of those deeper historical as well as, you know, sort of religious significances of like why here at this time, given this problem, given these circumstances. Again, that's 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 beyond my, you know, that's that's beyond my pay grade <laughs> in terms of understanding those conditions. But they're there, you know. And then again, the great saints they they draw on them. You know, Aquinas draws on them as he begins to expound in the Gospels what's going on and why it is really significant. And then we see later on in the history of theology why pointing out those conditions sort of reveals something very interesting. It gives us almost an argument, right, for why, even if you just look at things historically, why Jesus has a very unique role in history, right? So even if you don't believe right in the beginning that he is who he says he is, right, <laughs> looking at his history, right, reveals something very curious. Well, in terms of the prophets themselves, right, God is getting inside their heads, right? God is sending them to us, right, to reveal certain important things to us. Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure what you mean by prophecy here, but, but uh, uh, yeah, Anselm's, um, yeah, again, Anselm's epistemology is very interesting. In one respect, we're not so much tapping into the mind of God, right, but we're having some connection with those divine ideas, Right, so he is very much a Platonist. Those, those ideas are there, the, the archetypes, and we must have access to them to know the truth, right? And that's, that's why, you know, the relationship between ideas and things here, we know the truth too because we can recognize that relationship, that rectitude, right, in thought, we can have it as well. So we share in it with Christ, right, as the one who reveals to us in one, in one respect. Right, so when we talk throughout the history of philosophy, they use this expression. The philosophers everywhere use this weird expression. They talk about the natural light of reason. The light of reason. And they take that from this medieval period where literally it's God illuminating the mind, right, just like these lights do. The lights illuminate the relationship between me and the things seen. Remember that we talked about that at right, that first talk that we had. And it's not me, notice, and it's not the things seen. So there's this mediating activity that takes place in knowledge for, for Anselm. And so it's so, it is something like that, right? But I'm not sure exactly what he has to say about prophecy. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Thank you. Sorry. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. In one respect, that sounds, I, I like that argument. I think it's very interesting. Um, 
Yeah, again, it, it has more to do with uh, God's role uh, as being uh, the divine author of things, that the divine author of things has no obligation to the things that he brings about, strictly speaking. Oh, God loves them. No, so, so notice you've got this conflict, yes? God loves his creation, so he wants his creation to flourish and to thrive, which is what you're getting at. But on the other hand, he has no what's called um, sort of judicial obligation to, to anything that he creates. So, so his creation can't turn to him and say, you owe me. Yeah. Right? So, so that's the conflict, right? So he's going to say, like he says in... Um, uh, he says in On Truth, when he talks about, I think when he talks about the truth of essences, he talks about how you can discuss the same situation as both ought to have been done and ought not to have been done. And I think this is one of those circumstances where we see that weird relationship. But you're right. I mean, because it's the same reason why he hasn't destroyed Satan. I mean, like, why, why not destroy him? Because he's, he's just so much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> why keep him around? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... Well, one, because if he decides to create, he can't help but create beings that are delimited in nature. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the simple answer. But, but the more complex answer is, I don't know. Yeah, here's, here's, here's my response to that. He's just cool like that. Like, why does God create anything? Yes, purely out of love. Out, out of absolute love, right? Right, because God not only loves himself, yes, but he wants that love, to, his, his diffusiveness of being, he talks about it. God wants to share that love with as much as he can. And so he's got to make some more stuff to do it. He doesn't do it to entertain himself, right? He doesn't do it because he gets something out of the deal. He does it purely as an act of love. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, he's not surprised by any of this. <laughs> he's like, oh, let's create some angels. What just happened? Come on. Like, I leave you alone five minutes. You know, he's like, okay, well, let's make some human beings. Look, he's just, oh, like, how many days has it been? One day? Like, you know, you can't even behave yourself? I told you just not to, like, you, can't, you couldn't even just wait? <laughs> I don't know. No, he knows precisely exactly, you know, the story. That's, that's the cool thing. He created this world knowing the story. So the really interesting question is, you know, since you're a character in God's story, yeah, uh, how real are you? Yeah? And what role do you play? Absolutely. I mean, Harry Potter makes free choices, doesn't he? In one respect, Harry Potter makes free choices. He makes decisions. And in another, well, J.K. Rowling wrote the story. So how real are you, right? God's cool like that. He can make his stories live. Yeah. Yes, these things must come to pass. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. And they, they, they must so much that even in the garden, yes, when Jesus prays and he's sweating blood and he asks that the cup be passed from him. I mean, why not ask for that, yes? Because he, he didn't do anything to deserve this. Right? He's like, and, but he recognizes this must happen. Yeah? Thy will be done. That's what Anselm's talking about, by the way. That is that hypothetical necessity. That given this situation, and Christ's coming to us, that's the must. That it must happen this way. You know, that's what he's trying to defend with this argument. Well, that's right. Yeah, so whose, whose will is he doing? He's doing the will of the Father, right? Yes. That's why, that's why he can make... Re- he, so that justice, in order to repair it, he has to do, do it through it. Yeah. Again, so we want to be able to distinguish between what we call absolute necessity, this condition under which anything could possibly take place. Ab- concerning absolute necessity, God is not absolutely obligated to do anything, yes? But concerning hypothetical necessity, given the story of the fall, right? This is how it's going to have to play out now, given that God loves us and God wants to redeem us, right? Yes. So that's Anselm's response for it, this understanding of hypothetical necessity. So, like, look, I mean, this is what hypothetical... Let me give you a simpler example of hypothetical necessity. Maybe that's confusing. So, like, if you take a shower, then you'll get wet, right? There's a specific relationship that's being established with that condition, yes? Does that mean you have to take a shower? No. I mean, I hope you do at some point, yes? But you don't have to. There's nothing obligating you to. But once you do that, you see that there is a condition, right, that has to be met. That's how he's distinguishing these. The same, and you can also add with hypothetical necessities, by the way, you can also add in what are called um, false antecedents. Okay, so uh, Anselm and Aquinas can both say something like this. They can say, were God to lie, then he would sin. Yes? Were God to lie, then he would sin. That's a perfectly reasonable condition, right, that we can understand about the divine nature. But we also know one other thing, right, that the antecedent, the if part, will never obtain. Well, Father Sean, we might, I think we need to, to come to a close. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for having me here to talk again. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I learn a lot from hearing, like I said, questions from you, and um, uh, uh, this has really been an enjoyable opportunity. I say this now again because I won't be seeing you next week, right? I won't be able to be here for the final meeting. So it's Father Sean, right? So you guys can pelt him with all the questions that you've been, you know, hitting me up with because he's ready. You see it. He's ready to go, right? But uh, again, I want to thank you so much because this really has been a delightful experience. Okay? Thank you.